Welcome to Dr. Cheryl's Pod Couch, where we talk about all things mental health and parenting. Please rate, review, and subscribe when you're done listening to today's episode. Today, I'm happy to have on Katherine Winch, who dedicates her life to making the lives of women easier. In her role as founder and CEO of The Mom Complex, she helps the largest companies in the world, such as Walmart, Johnson & Johnson, and Wells Fargo, better understand and support their mom customers and employees. In her latest venture, Catherine combines over 10 years of groundbreaking research on motherhood with her own personal journey in her book, Slay Like a Mother, How to Destroy What's Holding You Back So You Can Live the Life You Want. Parade Magazine recently named Slay Like a Mother one of the top 10 life-changing self-help books of the year. Woohoo! And Catherine's research has been featured by The Today Show, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and Fast Company. Catherine is a recipient of the Working Mother of the Year Award. I have to hear about that. Um, by the Advertising Women of New York, the Outstanding Woman Award from the YWCA, and most recently, the Woman of the Decade Award, from the Women's Economic Forum in India. Catherine also has a TEDx talk called Unmasking Motherhood. Well, welcome, Catherine. Thank you for having me. That is a fancy intro. <laughs> but I also should mention how much tequila I drink. Maybe it would humanize me more. Yes, let's humanize you. <laughs> Actually, you know what? You humanize yourself because really right off the bat, your book starts with your own personal story of self-doubt and questioning your self-worth and being a pleaser. And I found it to be incredibly vulnerable, insightful, humbling. So I will say that as fancy as your intro sounds, the intro of your book is like, boom, here, here I am. I had this like seemingly also spectacular childhood, but here's what I was going through. So let's kick it off with that. How did you turn all of that stuff into self-compassion and empowerment for not just yourself, but others as well. Yeah. So I lived with what I refer to as a dragon of self-doubt for 20 years. So from age 15 to 35, I really never felt good enough. No matter what I achieved, what I did, I had the trappings of you know, a great life, the trappings of um, a lot of success in my life, but I was always hollow, always empty, always running, always chasing, and always hustling for external love because I just simply didn't have it inside of me. And it was quite an exhausting way to live, as you can imagine, as you read about in the book. And um, I felt like in some sense, after 20 years, I was living a double life because people were proud of me. They were excited by the the trophies and the accolades, but um, I, like I said, I was very hollow and empty on the inside. So I went through a very intensive two-year self-help journey where I went through lots of therapy, can't recommend therapy enough, uh, lots of self-help books, lots of Oprah episodes, lots of red wine. <laughs> and I finally learned to love myself from the inside so that I no longer require it from the outside. Love that. You talk about being sensitive and you talk about it in terms of, you introduce it in terms of the sensory processing sensitivity, like disorder, or really, you know, sort of category, which I really believe I have. I call myself, I'm a hyper empath. I mean, I just, I am an empath. 
And so you say that being sensitive isn't a problem. It's a gift. So talk about that. Introduce us to um, the sensory processing piece. How does that affect your life? And how do you see it as a gift for yourself and others? Yeah, so if you have a sensory processing sensitivity, it just means that you take in the world in greater strokes. You you see more, more affects you. It's almost like your eyes are open a little bit more, your heart's open a little bit more and things affect you, you know, other people in pain, you know, being an empath, like you said, um, things stick to you, they affect you. And um, it's more common in women than in men. And I really saw this in my own household where I had an older brother. I have an older brother, three years older than me. We grew up in the same environment. We were disciplined by the same parents for the same, you know, adolescent crimes that we committed. And my parents' disappointment, my parents' disappointment, my parents' discipline never hurt my brother. He was like, yeah, I got in trouble, like no big deal. And I was like, my life is over. My parents don't love me. You know, it just, their disappointment in me stuck to me like glue and I just couldn't get it off. And it was only when I first started writing the first chapter of Say Like a Mother that I really had to sit down with my brother and say like, how did this not hurt you? How did you not, how did it not affect you? Like our parents' disappointment, he said, well, I just didn't let it ruin my day. And I was like, my day? It was in therapy for 20 years. <laughs> you know, so, but to your point about it, you know, being a gift, um, I thought it was a bad thing for so long. And I was really the only person in my nuclear family that had this sensitivity. So I thought there was something wrong with me. And it certainly is sometimes a painful existence. But at the same time, I've chosen to, as an adult, see it as a gift. It means I'm empathetic towards the pain of other people. It means I can help others through their struggle. I mean, I wrote this book to help other women. I mean, and so my own sensitivity to the challenges and problems of others, I think I can, you know, see as a gift and not as a curse. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I sometimes work with kids who are are coming to realize that they are empaths. Um, they don't know that they don't, they don't know. They just say, I just feel things really big. I feel like I feel things more than other people. Um, and I always relate to them and say, yeah, me too. I do too. And even recently my, we were watching America's got talent and one of my kids said to me, why do you cry when <laughs> you watch this? Like they want to like literally know like what goes on. And I'm like, I don't just see people up on the stage, just being so vulnerable and giving it their all and, and just showing their talent to the world moves me. You know? I but cry all the time at that show and shows like the voice. And I think my kids think there's something wrong with me. Like, are yeah. you okay? Like, why is this making you sad? I'm like, it doesn't make me sad. I, I, I'm like, caring for these people. The other time that I do it, Cheryl, is if I watch a marathon like live, oh, yeah. I just, the people, because maybe it's because something I could never, ever physically do. Yeah. But I just go and stand on the sidelines and I cry like, and I don't know anybody there. <laughs> Me too. I mean, I mean, I just got the chills when you said that. I am big time with sports. Sports yeah. really move. I forget it. The NFL draft. Um, <laughs> my, my kids will be like, don't worry if I ever do anything big, I promise I'm going to thank you. I'm like, they thanked their mama. Like, they always thank their moms. And so me too. And it's, it's, 
it is still, even as an adult woman who understands what's happening, it still does sometimes like embarrass me because nobody else around me seems to be as moved as I am. Yeah, it's not as common. I mean, it's somewhat, I think it's like 20% of the population, you know, has this. And certainly there's other people that are sensitive in themselves, but even like for big, important business meetings and stuff, like there were times in my previous career in advertising, I would have to pinch myself. I would bruise myself on my side because I would be so caught up in emotion about something. And I was like, don't cry in this meeting. Don't cry in this meeting. And like, I mean, inflicting harm on myself because I just get so caught up in my emotions. Yes, I get, I'm getting much better at controlling my tears. I always say um, to my friends, like, I didn't do the ugly cry though. I, I didn't do that thing. I just, I always wanted to be the person who could just tear up oh. just a little bit. Like, and it looks so pretty and like you're moved, but like you're controlled and I'm, I'm not quite there yet, but I'm closer. <laughs> my whole face turns red. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so for anybody listening, particularly um, women, if you are that way, though, I want to, you know, just underscore um, what Catherine's talking about as a gift. I mean, you have this gift of being empathetic, of being able to understand groups, of being able to relate to a lot of different kinds of people, to be able to celebrate other people's accomplishments and wins. There's a, there really is a lot that is there. You just have to understand it. So I hope that if there's at least one person that's having an aha moment, um, once you understand what it is, you can channel it. Um, and I think clearly Catherine um, has done that. So there's another really great point in your book that you talk about, which is the fine line between struggling and suffering. And I am curious what you mean by that. So struggles are brought on by the external circumstances in your life. So you're trying to lose 10 pounds. You're going through a divorce. You have to make dinner five nights a week. Your mother's been diagnosed with cancer. Um, external circumstances in your life. But suffering is different. And suffering is when we dip below the line and we yell at ourselves for having these struggles in the first place or we beat ourselves up for not handling these struggles better. So as an example, if you happen to be a mother and, you know, you're making dinner every night, that's a struggle. And you're never really going to grow your way out of that, buy your way out of that. Like, that's a struggle. But you suffer when you're making dinner and you say, all your friends, Catherine, their children eat, you know, broccoli three meals a day and yours only eat Jolly Ranchers, you know, and you're yelling at yourself. And so what I want everybody to know is that the goal is the struggle, the struggle is real, but the suffering is optional. You don't have to beat yourself up along the way. Yeah. I really had really never thought about that way in, you know, in the, in my copy of the book, which is so fabulous. And the cover's amazing and the inside. I love, I just love everything about it. I wrote notes and there are places in the book as well to um, you prompt, you know, people to ask questions like, what are you struggling with? Or the battles that I want to win? And why does that matter? Um, I love the analogy of the major leagues and the minor leagues. There's really a lot in here. Um, but what I put in my notes in that particular area was that the struggling is internal and the suffering is external. Um, but is, is the way, um, yeah, just kind of the way that I, you know, yeah, it's exactly right it's just a conceptualization, but I really, I really like that. Um, 
And, you know, suffering is something that's often, um, you know, something we do very in private. And it's something that, you know, is not like we can all relate to the struggle of, you know, dealing with a toddler meltdown or the struggle of, you know, a teenager who talks back to you. The suffering is like, I'm not a good mom. I am a terrible person. I don't know how to do this. I don't, you know, I have mothers say to me every week, like, I'm just not good at this thing. I'm not good at this. So um, I may have said that opposite, but let me make sure I'm getting this right. The struggle actually should be the external stuff and the suffering is internal. That's right. That's exactly right. Okay. In case I said it wrong. I love that. Thank you for for highlighting that difference because I think that could be a real game changer for people, um, you know, especially when you need it. Like when you need to hear this message, it just, it really, it really hits home. You also talk about the perfect mom paradox. Can you explain what you mean by that and what we can do about it? So when we first become mothers, our expectations are extraordinarily high. So I'm going to make my own baby food, you know, cloth diapers only. I mean, it's the expectations are ridiculous. Luckily, over time, those expectations come down. And most of us would say if our children are alive at the end of the day that we're putting that in the wind column. But at the same time, when you first start out, your experience is zero, right? You've never done it before. Um, and then luckily, over time, your experience increases. But the gap between expectations and experience is a pretty painful place to be. So if your expectations are very high and your experience is very low, then that's going to cause you to suffer. That's going to cause you to yell at yourself. And what's important to know about the perfect mom paradox is that it comes back over and over and over again with every new stage of motherhood. So you might figure out how to be the mother of toddlers and then you have teenagers and those two life stages have zero in common and you're a rookie again. And then maybe your adult children are experiencing infertility or divorce. And so it's, um, What I like to say is once a first time mom, always a first time mom. So what you can do about it is stop expecting to have every life stage of motherhood figured out when you've never done it before. So I'm a mother to two teenagers right now, and it's really quite hard. And I have to keep reminding myself that I'm a rookie and I've never done it before. So, yes, I've been a mother for 15 years, but I've been the mother to a 15 year old for a matter of days. And um, that perspective can help you have some grace with yourself, some self-compassion. I love that. Um, the thought that you're always a rookie. I mean, I, I just actually had this conversation in a session last night. I, I find myself having that conversation when kids either go off to college or they become young adults. I find that to be a big time of like, huh, so are we going to be friends now? Like, what do we do, right? Because they come home from college and then it's like, well, I was just living the life, whatever I wanted to do. Now you're going to tell me I have a curfew and I have to do chores and I, you know, and so I, I watch um, parents really trying to figure this out. Like, how do we become in relationship with one another? Okay, you want to be treated like an adult? Well, then I shouldn't have to tell you to clean up after yourself or, you know, and so it's interesting and you're right. I think once you master one age, there's a new stage. I always just say this is, there's seasons and reasons and ages and stages. And yeah, if we can go into it with the notion that I'm never going to master this thing, this is a, a lifelong work in progress. I think it's a great mindset. 
Yeah. And you're never going to master it. And even if you get it under control, it's going to change in the next mm -hmm. life stage. And so then it's like, you're starting back at, you know, ground zero again, which it just is the way it works. You know, there's something wrong with you if you feel lost or overwhelmed at every new stage because you've never done it before. Of course, you would be overwhelmed. Yeah, I think that message we can't hear enough. You know, you're not supposed to be this master. And it's interesting because as you said it, I thought about how much people don't generally like change. And that's all parenting is, is a constant change cycle. Yeah. Um, you and know. if you have multiple children, like they're very different. I mean, it's not like one size fits all. I mean, even if they're the same gender, you know, it's um, kids are very, very different. So that's something that's new and different that I don't think is talked about enough. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I love that you bring in so many ideas and disciplines and like research and data from different but related fields. Um, I'm curious, um, you talk about a new kind of body language as it relates to intuition, um, which is another area um, that I'm very interested in. So what do you mean by a new kind of body language and how do you think we need to be in touch with intuition? What are your thoughts around that? So the body language around intuition is really sensing how your body responds to a circumstance. And so our bodies respond, our intuition, our gut, our soul responds faster than our mind. And so, you know, if I were to ask, you know, anybody listening right now, do you want to have a child or do you want to have another child? Then, you know, immediately either you think about warm, fuzzy blankets and you just can't wait to be a parent for the first time or, you know, for the third time or something in your gut was like, <gasps> you know, like I can't imagine having another child. And it might be your heart races a little bit or you just sense it in your stomach or your hands get clammy. And so it's starting to tune into that compass that is within your body your body will tell you if something is good for you or bad for you before your mind starts going manic and racing through all the scenarios because your mind is also playing into what other people think of you and your self-esteem and your self-image. And um, so when I was starting my company, The Mom Complex, as an entrepreneur, I went and interviewed other entrepreneurs and I had them tell me about their business model and how they made money and if they had a board of directors and I didn't know how to be an entrepreneur. And I just listened to my gut every single time. So when someone said, well, I have this board of directors, I have to meet with them quarterly and I owe them all this money. And I was like, ah, like my insides were screaming, like, I don't want to do that. And so it's just listening to how your body responds. I love that. I think that is an element of being a human being that we are not in touch with enough and don't understand that well. Um, there's, you know, a very classic book on trauma called The Body Keeps the Score. And that's uh, a phrase that I use all the time, like at not, you know, even out of the context of trauma with kids, I use it with teens, adults, just you can, your mind can play a lot of tricks and it can tell you a lot of stories and it can do a whole bunch of things, but your body will keep the score. And if you really want to know what's happening, you just have to be quiet enough to listen. Yep. Right? There's a lot of messages there. So you have really a lot of exercises, a lot of food for thought within um, Slay Like a Mother. What do you feel like is different about this book? How does this book, you think, 
um, maybe touch women in a different way than maybe some of the other either books that are out there or just messages that are out there. Because there's a lot of mom messages. It's really, I think, kind of loud and crowded in the space of wanting to support moms in lots of ways through humor, through, you know, tears, through all these different ways. It wasn't always this way, but it is right now. So I'm curious your experience around A, why is the field so crowded? And B, what differentiates um, Slay Like a Mother and kind of just some of the ways that you work? I think the field is crowded because women need a lot of help, (laughs) you know, um, and support. And we're finally asking for it. And so books are showing up to support us, which I think is a very positive thing. I think there's two things that make Slay Like a Mother differently, make it different. One is it's very, very robust. So there are a lot of books that are just the author's personal story. And I have a very deeply personal, you know, story of from broken to whole. And um, and I certainly share that journey in the book. But it's not just my journey. I also include research, as you mentioned, from over 10,000 women in 17 countries. Like, it's just not my personal story. So I think this book... Um, makes women really believe that they're not alone because it's very robust. And then the second thing that makes it different, and you mentioned this, is it's interactive. So there are exercises, and I really invite the reader to, I don't want you to just read this and digest it. I want you to process it. I want you to put it into your own words. And there's something powerful when I was going through therapy, and my therapist would have me write exercises down when you see how you feel about yourself in your own handwriting there's something about it that makes it very very undeniable right you're like no that's my handwriting (laughs) that's the way I feel about myself and so I think really inviting the reader to make an interactive process is different I mean it's certainly not a light beach read you got to be ready for the work for this book. I love the point that you make about writing in your own handwriting, because for me, sometimes I'm a big journaler and I talk about journaling a lot, but sometimes I just want to sit at my computer and write it, you know, type it. And I think, no, everything gets typed. That's not personal. Even if I were to print it out, there's something different about handwriting, even my mood, right? You'll be able to see the way I write something. I underline it, right? A bunch of times. So, um, it's a great well, the point. first time this um, happened to me was about eight years ago when I was in therapy and my therapist asked me to write down um, on a piece of paper the last terrible thing that I said to myself. And, you know, I thought about it for a minute and I wrote down and um, I still have the piece of paper from my journal. And what I wrote down at the time was, you are a poor excuse for a strong woman. Oh, wow. And that's what I thought about myself. And when I saw that in my own handwriting, it was just a catalytic moment. I mean, just life changing of it was no longer undeniable. I mean, it was undeniable. It was no longer something that I could pretend I didn't feel. And it motivated me to, you know, go to the bookstore and buy some books and, you know, watch some videos and start learning about self-help. But I think if I typed it, it wouldn't have been the same. Like that was my handwriting. It's so personal when you see it. I agree. I couldn't agree more. That's um, such a great point. Little, little highlight that I'm so glad that we um, are ending on. I really can't say enough good things about Slay Like a Mother. 
and I read a lot of books about moms um, <clears throat> all over the place from, from memoir to, um, you know, self-help. And this one is special. There's a way in which you are connecting <clears throat> and having people connect with themselves in a way that just feels really fresh, really relatable. And it's funny because I know you have a part in here that says that you are not alone. And it's like, you don't even need to say that in this book because there's something about the way you wrote this book that you're like, yeah, I'm not alone. I'm so not alone. And this is, you know, mostly what I do is um, stuff in the mothering space. And I was still really struck by it. So congratulations. Means uh, a lot to me so much. Thank you. This book was rejected for four years by 23 publishers. So it's such a joy to hear somebody say that. You know, and I want like another little highlight that you just said. I mean, if this isn't just what authors can relate to, but authors can really relate to that. But, I, you know, four years, 23 rejections. I mean, one rejection is tough two rejections get stuff. Then somewhere in the middle, you're like, maybe I'm getting used to this rejection thing. And then you go back down. And um, I just want to, I want to underscore that because whether it's that you want to write a book or you want a certain job or you want a certain client, whatever it is, we all deal with rejection. I remember the first time I heard that Brene Brown's books She's like, I had a whole bunch sitting in my trunk. I think my mom just bought a bunch of copies just to make me feel like they were being sold. Like all of these women that we look up to and think they have it all going on. And um, of course, success comes easy. It, it doesn't always come easy. And I love when women share their true journey. It, it just means so much to somebody who's maybe trying something for the first time or has some private dream. I always say everybody has these like secret dreams of doing stuff. Right. And so thank you for sharing that. Thank you for writing this book. You deserve all of the praise. You deserve all of these awards. It's really wonderful. So again, slay like a mother, how to destroy what's holding you back so you can live the life you want. Congratulations, Catherine. Thank you so much for being a guest. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Dr. Cheryl's podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. This goes a long way to helping little podcasters like us have greater reach. Thanks so much.